My name is Mike Adams. Um, I haven't been here in a while. I've been a member of this church since I was 10 years old, maybe. I grew up in Los Alamos. And um, I was asked, I think Elisa reached out to me earlier this week and asked me to speak. Um, I guess there was someone else lined up and something fell through. And then she told me that the topic was resistance. And I thought, okay, I'll I'll do that. But I didn't really know where I was going to go with that. Um, So I've been watching TED Talks and YouTube videos and reading about resistance and thinking about resistance because the the simple, obvious thing is like, you know, if if you all know me, for anyone who knows me, you know that I've been really involved in racial equity and inclusivity work in in the county and things like that. And um, so you might expect this talk to go there primarily. And it's not that I'm not going to go there, but I'm not really... That's not exactly the point. I started reading about resistance and thinking about resistance, and I read about resistance from a physics perspective, which primarily has to do with electrical resistance in a, uh, in a circuit, and that made me think about other forms of resistance. I looked up resistance and read you know, Merriam-Webster. I read the thesaurus to find synonyms for resistance, and... and um, at some point, I started remembering a sermon that I wrote and delivered 15 years ago. I think I delivered it in Santa Fe, and I may have delivered it here, too. It was called Atheism as a Spiritual Path. And I had discovered that I was an atheist again after a number of years. I had been sort of a very loose theist for a number of years when I got sober, and then a friend of mine sent me a link to Bobby Fisher's letter to the Kansas City School Board uh, in response to the Kansas City School Board passing a rule that science classes had to be split in half. Half would teach science, and the other half would teach intelligent design. And so Bobby Fisher wrote a letter to the Kansas City School Board explaining that that was a good idea, but that they had failed, they, they really needed to segregate, you know, to break it out a little bit more and break it into thirds because it was really important that they also teach the theory that the universe was actually created by a flying spaghetti monster who was in control of space and time. And then Bobby Fischer proceeded to use all of the creationist arguments in support of the theory that the universe was actually created by a flying spaghetti monster And his letter struck a chord with many, many people. It's called Flying Spaghetti Monsterism or Pastafarianism. You have probably seen people with bumper stickers on their car called FSM, Flying Spaghetti Monster. Um, There are sightings. There's sites where you can take a photograph if you see the Flying Spaghetti Monster in a piece of bread or on a cake or in some rust on the side of someone's car. And you can submit the photo and people will say, you know, May his noodly appendage touch you, and things like that. And um, I, got, I was so amused by this whole thing that I, I went online, and I found a bunch of boards. And in reading these boards, um, a bunch of evangelizing Christians got on these boards trying to convert these people. Oh, when you're teaching about flying spaghetti monsterism, and I'm not considering myself teaching about it right now, you're supposed to dress in pirate regalia and speak with a pirate accent. And I do believe that that's where international talk like a pirate day probably came from. Because it turns out that
that, you know, and, and I don't even know if this is actually true, but it turns out, according to Bobby Fischer in his letter to the Kansas City School Board, that if you look at the population of pirates, you'll see that there is an inverse relationship between the population of pirates as, as a proportion of the human um, population and the rise in global temperatures. So he concluded, therefore, that the pirates are flying spaghetti monsters' chosen people. And so, therefore, when you teach flying spaghetti monsterism, you should honor the pirates and talk like a pirate and dress like a pirate. So, um, these people came onto these boards full of people posting online in pirate language, pirate dialect, and just having fun to evangelize them and convert them to Christianity. I'm not sure why anyone would think that that was the place to go. Like, there's softer targets out there, I'm sure. But they did that, and it resulted in these hilarious debates, I guess you could call it, these hilarious exchanges that I read with great interest in entertainment until about a month later I realized that I had lost any belief that I had in the existence of God or gods. And I had had a very loose relationship with theism since getting sober. And it, it frightened me, because I thought I, I was going to start drinking. Because part of getting sober was having a relationship with a higher power. It didn't have to be specific or anything like that, but having a relationship with a higher power. And all of a sudden, I didn't really have that anymore. And it, it terrified me. And um, it's been you know, a number of years since then. I am going to be 28 years sober shortly. So I didn't start drinking. It's all right. I didn't start drinking. Um, and, and everything has turned out all right so far. You know. But um, part of what happened in, in, out of that whole experience was I started, I started like thinking about um, my former theology, and I started thinking about um, some of the ideas in the Unitarian Church, like... Um, interconnectedness, and I started thinking about sort of what I was tapping into, you know, like, because really the thing that turned me into a theist when I first got sober was prayer. I would pray, even though I didn't believe in the existence of God or gods, I would pray, and I would ask God for things like, um, please relieve me of my resentment, because I was so pissed off all the time, profoundly angry, and I would drink around that constantly, and I would say, please just keep me sober for the next 10 minutes, right, because it was a struggle to get through 10 minutes at first, and then one day I was 60 days sober, and I found myself somehow in San Diego, California, at the international convention of, of um, this group of sober people, and um, while I was there, they... I just kind of looked around and I was like, wow, maybe there is a God because maybe this God that I didn't even believe in just kept me sober because I was willing to ask. And that started a roughly a 12-year, like very kind of tepid relationship with theism. And so then when I found that I had completely lost any belief in the existence of God or gods and I didn't drink, I started to really think about what, what was it that worked so well about prayer for me? Why did that work? And, and I thought about it, you know, like, do I have to quit that now? And I thought about when I first started praying 12 years earlier, and I re realized that I had done so as an experiment 
just to see if anything happened because I was desperate. And I was like, well, I'll just continue the experiment. So I'm one of two or three atheists who you will ever meet who prays on a regular basis to a God in whom I don't believe. And the reason I pray is because it has an immediate impact on my outlook on life, on my attitude. It causes me to calm down. It calms my central nervous system. I don't believe that there is some extra, you know, extraterrestrial, I guess it would be extraterrestrial um, being, like, doing anything to me. I believe that I am affecting my own psychology and central nervous system when I pray. And that's fine with me. It works. Like, what do I care whether there's a real God or not a real God? I don't really care. You know, I, I don't say that there is no such thing as God. I just don't believe in the existence of God. Like, I'm not going to tell someone else that's a, for sure a fiction. I don't know that. Nobody knows that. Anyone who claims to know that God does or doesn't exist, they're making it up. They don't know. They don't know any more than any of us know. We don't know. I just don't believe in the existence of God or gods. That makes me an atheist. But what I do believe in, increasingly, is the scientific methodology and the scientific process and the way we discover things and the way we learn things and the way we refine our knowledge and expand our knowledge and revise what we believe, there's a certain set of values inherent in that that I have adopted in my life, part of which led me to continue praying after I realized that I no longer had any belief in the existence of God or gods. And a lot of that, the, the reason this all ties into resistance is because roughly 13 billion years ago, when particles formed... Remember in the story, the Big Bang, particles formed. Some of those particles were a particle that we were able to prove at CERN in 2013, if memory serves me, called the Higgs boson. And the Higgs boson was a particularly interesting particle because what the Higgs boson does is somehow it generates a field, and that field has the effect on other matter, other particles, that they experience mass. So prior to the existence of the Higgs boson, as far as we know, prior to the existence of the Higgs boson, everything traveled around at the speed of light. But because of the Higgs boson and things experiencing mass, and therefore um, inertia, and things like that, things quit traveling at the speed of light. The significance of that is that when you're traveling at the speed of light, like if we were to travel at the speed of light, we would stop experiencing the passage of time. So there's some interesting things in that book. It, you know, like later on in the book, it says roughly 10 to 12 seconds after the, the, you know, everything exploded, then, or maybe it was on a website, I don't remember, but roughly 10 to 12 seconds after, after the Big Bang, that's when matter started to form. And it, it really kind of raises an interesting question for me because I start to wonder, like, how could we possibly call it 10 to 12 seconds because... As far as we know, there wasn't really any such thing as time prior to that, because that would have been when the Higgs boson formed. So the idea of what existed before the Big Bang is kind of a crazy question to think about. And that's why they're saying it's the greatest mystery. And I'm not like saying that's why we should all be theists. Trust me, I'm not saying that. And I don't care if you are a theist. That's fine. I'm just not. Um, but... I was thinking about that, and I was thinking about the Higgs boson, and I was thinking about the experience of mass and not being able to accelerate to the speed of light, and I was thinking that is the primary resistance that exists in reality 
in, in, in the universe. The resistance to accelerate to the speed of light. And the closer you get to the, to the speed of light, the slower time passes. So I was reading some articles recently, and if, if you were to travel at 99.99% the speed of light for roughly an hour, I think it was, and you got back to Earth, 2,000 years would have passed on Earth. So it would have been an hour for you, 2,000 years on Earth. Everyone you know, long gone. And that kind of thing sort of fascinates me. And it, it made me realize that really, and this is why they called it the God particle in 2013, when it came out, there were all these articles, because the fact that matter can experience mass causes it to group together, causes it to form stars and galaxies, causes it to collapse and to be, form more complex matter, like those fundamental particles formed atoms later, atoms, and I don't mean atoms like Mike Adams, but they, they formed atoms, and then atoms came together and they formed more complex atoms and heavier density atoms. And everything has been a process, evolutionarily, as, as far as I'm concerned, it's been a process of matter combining itself and becoming more complex and more cooperative over the course of time, including life. Life, if you think about the evolution of life on our planet, as far as we can tell, it is a, if you were to summarize the story, it would be a story of things becoming more complex and more cooperative over the course of time. If you look at civilizations and human cultures, that is a story in general of us becoming more complex and more cooperative over the course of time. So I guess where I'm going with this is that it seems to me, and this is just me, and this is why I said I didn't know where this was all going to go, and it still could change today, it seems to me that resistance is fundamentally necessary for our existence, that nothing exists without resistance, absolutely nothing. And that really, that really posed some, for me, that really posed some interesting philosophical questions when I was thinking about it. I did a bunch of mind mapping, and, and, um, and then it was like 3.30 in the morning, and I had to go to sleep. Um, but I took a course a number of years ago, and one of the ideas that was presented in the course was they were saying that resistance causes persistence. Resistance causes persistence. And it, it kind of seemed like, you know, like um, dime store. No, it didn't. At the time, it seemed profound. And then a few years later, it seemed like dime store philosophy or profundity. And now I'm kind of looking at it going, well, you know, maybe there's something to that yet again, right? Because if resistance is the basis for everything that we understand in terms of existence, then it does seem like resistance causes persistence, very much so. And if my observation, my you know, armchair philosophy observation is accurate that you know, biology, physics, chemistry, sociology, animals, human experience, life, that everything follows the same pattern of becoming more complex and generally more cooperative over the course of time, then it seems that that is a, probably a function of resistance. So it started to make me question certain things. And, and I don't mean this like, you know, like I've changed my mind on racial equity and inclusivity or anything like that, but I have, 
I have started to wonder about certain things that, not exactly question my values, but I've, I've wondered about like, what's the path to promoting values? And what's the path to, what's the path to promoting values and, and different things like that. And I, re I remembered certain things that I've heard people say in the past um, when, with that group of um, sober people, like one of the things that people would often say is like, they would often say something to the effect of, well, I knew because that was going to be so much work, that that was so hard that it wasn't God's will for me. You know, they, they thought that if it was God's will for them, it would be easy and it would just fall into place. And I remember thinking like, that's stupid. Like, life is not easy. You know, getting sober was not easy. Do, doing, going and making amends to everyone I had harmed in my life was not easy. Why is it that as soon as we've done that, people think like, oh, everything will be easy now. And if, 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 it's, if it's difficult, it's not God's will for me. And I, I don't agree with that still. And now that I've like stumbled upon this idea of resistance, I really don't believe that. I really think that resistance is fundamentally what's necessary for, um, I think it's really necessary in a lot of ways, including for our own mental health. I mean, maybe not so much resistance that you feel completely incapable, but I think that resistance is fundamentally necessary. And um, it made me really pause and think about things because I, when I was looking at definitions and synonyms, which I wrote down somewhere, Synonyms for resistance, battle, defiance, protection, refuse, support, something that I can't read, counteraction, withstanding, struggle, impedance, safeguard, durable, dependable, resolute, now, some of those words in that list occur for me as antonyms to each other. But they all, within a certain context, fall into the category of resistance. When you think about the French Revolution, the idea of resistance was liberty. There was resistance to tyranny. Same in Star Wars. But one of the antonyms to resistance was liberation. <laughs> Go figure. So it occurred for me that resistance is really a universal phenomenon. And that when I'm thinking about these things, and probably most people, when we're thinking about these things, we're thinking that we're going to arrive at the truth about something which really is only occurring inside of subjective reality. It occurs inside of our ability to generate language. It occurs inside of our ability to conceive of abstract concepts. And it doesn't actually occur. I mean, I'm not saying resistance doesn't occur, but resistance in some of those contexts doesn't actually occur out in the physical world. Right? There's, there's no resisting tyranny in physics or chemistry, as far as I know, right? I mean, maybe someone will prove me wrong someday. That'll be interesting. But as far as I know, 
those are all concepts that are based on our own intellectual constructs and ideas that we, I think we erroneously attribute to reality and to truth. And so I think that we cause certain things to persist, maybe not just by resisting them, but by the way that we resist them in many cases. And I'm going to use as an example of something where I feel like this is a positive outcome. I'm going to use as an example um, the attempted genocide of Native Americans on the North American continent, which has easily could be considered to have continued through today, but definitely through the 1980s, 1990s. Because in 1950-something, my mom was kidnapped by the U.S. government from her family while they were visiting Washington State. And she was adopted into a white family as part of the American Indian Adoption Project. When she was in foster care before being adopted, my mom was abused. She was abused in all sorts of ways. And I'm not going to get into the specifics, but like, if you're thinking it, it's probably part of what happened. She was neglected. She was deprived of food. She was deprived of love. She was deprived of care. And then she was adopted into a family where she didn't experience being loved. And we settled here in Los Alamos. And she was told that all of her Indian family were dead. And as an adult, many decades later, she traveled to Canada just to find out what she could learn about her tribe, the Liwat Nation. And it turns out that she had eight or nine living brothers and sisters. She had a living father who had spent tens of thousands of dollars in decades trying to find her and get her back. And the United States government had actively um, hidden her existence and survival from him and withheld that from him. And this happened to thousands of Native Americans. So from that context, resistance is the fact that we continued to survive. From my context, from my experience, resistance is the fact that I have reconnected with my people and I'm learning their songs. And that my daughter is learning the language. But then I think, okay, so what kind of resistance is causing white supremacy to continue to exist? And that's the question I got really interested in last night. What kind of resistance is causing that? And I don't know. I actually don't know. I don't, I don't have an answer for you. What kind of resistance is causing LGBTQ plus bigotry to continue to thrive? Why do I keep having to write letters in response to bigoted letters to the editor every time there's a school board election or every time Pride Month comes up? Like, I, I do it because I think it's important, but I'm getting sick of it. Like, I don't want to keep writing about that. Like, just mind your own business. So it makes me wonder what kind of resistance, and I don't even know for a fact that it is resistance causing that persistence, but it's kind of where I'm looking right now, and I wanted to present that as a question. So I guess today what I'm asking you to walk away with, and i got to wrap up here quickly. <laughs> Elisa knows that I can go. I can... I could, I could keep you all here for another hour and a half, no problem. <laughs> um, 
I've been, I'm going to ask everyone as you walk out to really think about that. Just think about resistance and where resistance causes things to persist regardless. Because a number of years ago, I wrote a letter. I, it wasn't even a letter to the editor. It was a blog, it was a blog post. And it was, about, um, it was when Black Lives Matter first started happening. And there was a movement called Native Lives Matter. And then there was this conflict about don't co-opt the, the idea, the message of Black Lives Matter, come up with another slogan. And I was thinking about it, and, and it, it bothered me at the same time as I understood why, right? We didn't want to take the, a message and then change it into something else, because that, that was already happening. We were already seeing, like, we were already at that point seeing all lives matter as a counterpoint. We were already seeing blue lives matter and, and things like that. So they, they were kind of, like, feeling very sensitive, like, don't do that. And um, I remember thinking about it, and it occurred to me that on this continent in particular, the oppression of Native Americans and the oppression of African Americans is almost genetically entwined. Because one group of people who were found to be insuitable to live in servitude because of our lack of resistance to European diseases we were pushed off the land and hunted almost to extinction, while another group of people were kidnapped from their friends and family and brought across the ocean so that they could serve as enslaved individuals to work that land and create wealth for other people that they never got to share in. And so that oppression was really intertwined on a fairly profound level since the very beginning of the colonization of North America, of, of the Americas altogether. And so you could argue that white supremacy was just baked into the existence of North America from that context. And I, I'm not going to argue that that's not the case. But what became interesting to me is perhaps there's some kind of resistance that we're engaged in which causes the profound level of persistence that exists on those topics. Because the kind of white supremacy or racism that I'm seeing right now in Los Alamos County, and I say this as having been a member of the racial inclusivity and inclusivity task force that the county started, I say this as having been a member of the Native American Parent Advisory Council for the Los Alamos Schools, and having served on the Equity Council for the Los Alamos Schools, I'm seeing similar, somewhat different, but very similar forms of racism and bigotry to what I experienced growing up here, you know, 40 years ago, several decades ago. It hasn't changed that much. Like, it's, I, can't say it's, I can't say it's worse, but I can't really say it's better. It's occurred at different points like it was getting better, but not now. So I can't, tell, I can't stand here and say it's better. And one of the things that has really caught my attention, and it, it just made me wonder when I stumbled on this topic of resistance from this context, is that in serving on those committees, one of the things that I've observed that has been really profoundly disturbing to me has been the really deep level of anti-blackness that exists in Los Alamos County. It surprised me and didn't surprise me all at the same time, but it disturbed me very deeply. It has disturbed me very deeply. 
there is a profound level of anti-blackness in Los Alamos County. And I can't explain it, but that whole thing at the school, you know, the football game, the middle school, that showed that there was a pretty deep level of anti-indigeneity in Los Alamos County, too. And everywhere I've worked, I've heard comments about, like, oh, you know, they went to high school in the valley. So apparently, there's some pretty strong anti-Hispanic sentiment as well in Los Alamos County. And so I know that we, and I've participated in this, we like to think of ourselves as a very transformed community, and we're not. I'm just going to say we're not. I'm not saying that everyone here is like, you know, a terrible bigot or anything like that. But one of the things that occurs to me is that one form of resistance, I think that one form of resistance that may contribute to the problem is the personal resistance that we have coupled with the mischaracterized judgment that we put on racism. Because the fact is that being human requires us to categorize things. We couldn't survive if we didn't categorize things. We have to categorize things in order to make sense of the world. So the fact that every single one of us in this room and anyone watching on the internet has participated in racial stereotyping does not make any of us a bad person. Every single person in here, including me, has participated in racial stereotyping. You can't be human and not do that. It's baked into the, the software. So the issue isn't that we participate in racial stereotyping or that we participate in the exotification of, you know, someone who looks racially exotic, I don't know, um, or that we participate in these things. The problem isn't so much that. The problem is that we fail to acknowledge that we did that because we've decided at some point that that is something that only evil people do. And so it becomes really hard for us to look intern, inside at ourselves and see where we've participated in these things that are literally hard-coded into being human. They're literally hard-coded into how we see and operate. And so I guess I do have part of an answer. And part of the answer is that the conversation we're having about bigotry in general needs to change. And it needs to change from bigotry is synonymous with being evil to bigotry is synonymous with being human, and failing to take responsibility for the harm of bigotry is synonymous with being a bad person, I guess. I don't know. Because let's just say we were dancing in the other room, and um, someone accidentally stepped on my foot. I might push them, especially if they had, you know, like a, a hard-soled shoe, or, you know, like a stiletto heel in particular, I might push them fairly vigorously off of my foot and say, ow! And if they're like, oh my gosh, I'm so sorry, be like, oh, I know, I know you didn't mean that, right? I know they didn't mean that. When someone says something to me that's racially insensitive, I know that you probably didn't mean that as a bigoted thing. I know that. So if I point out that that hurt, it's not helpful to say, I didn't mean that, get off my back. Or, are you sure that that was actually racist? Because I'm, I'm not sure that that was really racist, Mike. You know, that's not helpful. 
what's helpful, you know, like if someone's like, oh, I didn't mean to step on your, did that really hurt your foot, Mike? Are you sure? Because I, I didn't feel it. It didn't hurt my foot. I used to do this to my poor daughter. I'd, I'd have these stupid arguments where I was like, well, I, that didn't tickle me at all, you know? <laughs> and, and the fact of the matter is that really what I want is for the person who accidentally stepped on my foot just to apologize for the harm. That's all I want. And it's the same if someone is racially insensitive. I just want them to be aware of the fact that they harmed me and to apologize for that and then to try and do better in the future. Try and do better. Like you may step on someone's foot again. And you may, you will, you will, I will participate in racial stereotyping again. Probably this week. It's inevitable. Unless you're just going to go lock yourself in a bedroom somewhere and never interact with other people you are going to participate in racial stereotyping again probably this week. It's inevitable. So the, the trick is to treat it with the same level of adult, I don't know, adulting <laughs> that we treat when we accidentally step on someone's foot. Right? And um, I think that maybe that's an, a worthwhile area of resistance to look at. What is our resistance to just acknowledging these facts. And then if we can start to change that, maybe our society can start to have a more adult conversation about that, and maybe we can start to have real conversations about race and the harm and things like that. And with that, I have now gone over, so I'm going to shut up.